Now, just by virtual show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the name William Tyndale before? I imagine some of you might be familiar with the name. Others of you, this might be the first time you're hearing of his name. But William Tyndale was a linguist and a professor at Cambridge University in the 1500s. Many people say he was one of the most brilliant minds of his time. And Tyndale became fluent in both Greek and Hebrew, which allowed him to read the Bible in its original languages, which at the time was actually pretty rare, even for priests. And so Tyndale, upon reading the Bible, came to two simple conclusions that we take for granted in our day, but in his day were very radical. The first conclusion he came to was that the Bible should function as the ultimate source of authority, not the Pope, not tradition, but the Bible should be our ultimate source of authority. Now, the second conclusion he came to was that every believer should be able to read the Bible in his or her own language. Now we're hearing that we're like, duh. I mean, of course, every person should be able to access the Bible, read it in their language. And in our day, we have the Bible in every language. We have translations at our fingertips, but we have to understand at the time it was illegal in England to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. And so Tyndale with a sense of conviction and calling from God escaped to Germany where he translated the first ever English version of the New Testament. And with that same conviction, he smuggled 18,000 Bibles into England. Now, at that time, there were secret gatherings all across England where people would gather around someone literate enough to read the Bible to them. And some people heard the Bible being read aloud to them for the first time ever. It was so powerful. Now, when Henry VIII found out, he was enraged. And by nefarious means, he actually bought up 6,000 copies and had them burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I mean, imagine our governor just rounding up Bibles all across the land and burning them at the steps of the church. That's how radical it was. And Henry VIII passed a new law saying that all of Tyndale's Bibles had to be destroyed on contact and that anyone found to be in possession of one would be sentenced to death. Now, during this time, he sent a spy to Germany to infiltrate Tyndale's crew, and this spy over time befriended Tyndale and later went on to betray him. And so Tyndale was arrested, brought back to England, and after a year of torture, after refusing to recant, he was burned at the stake. Now, witnesses report that Tyndale's last words were a prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And what's so powerful is that God responded to that prayer because a few years later, the king recanted and for the first time allowed the Bible to be translated into English for all to read. And to this day, many of the translations that we know and love and use, like the ESV and the NIV, are directly from Tyndale's translation. Now, I tell you this story because I think that many of us today take our easy access to the Bible for granted. We have to remember that some of the most brilliant minds throughout history were willing to suffer and die to make the Bible available for you and I to read. There was a great price that was paid throughout history for us to have access to this book. Now, in the 16th century, 
the Reformation's most revolutionary idea was to put this book, this Bible, into the hands of the common people. You have to understand at the time, this was a radical idea to put the Bible in the hands of the common people. And so it was the Reformation's most revolutionary idea. But it was also the Reformation's most dangerous idea. While it's so beautiful that the common people got access to this book, there was also a danger there. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't get my first cell phone until I was a sophomore in high school. And further, I didn't get my first smartphone until I was a sophomore in college. You know, kids nowadays, they get phones as early as elementary school. Right when they pop out of the womb, they got an Instagram account. They got their own smartphone. But for us, you know, we got it late. And so I think for us, we understand having smartphones for as long as we have, living without them, we know that these are powerful little devices, both for good and for bad and ugly. But I want to say that kids don't really understand the power of this little tiny device. I know I didn't. When I got my first cell phone in high school, I only used it for snake and texting and downloading cool ringtones or having cool cell phone cases. But I think kids don't really understand the power of this little device. And I imagine that when I have kids, It would be irresponsible of me to just drop this powerful little device in their laps and leave them to figure it out on their own without any guidance, without any teaching or regulation. It's dangerous. You know, I remember the first time my dad discovered the power of Amazon. It's like every week we came over, he would have a new device or a new gadget to show us. One week we came over, and I saw this little robot scaling his window from the outside, just cleaning it and moving. It's like, where'd you get that? Oh, Amazon. Next week we come over, he has a soda stream. He's making his own carbonated water. The following week we come over, he has an air fryer. And, you know, he got so many gadgets and devices, we became the dumping ground for everything that he didn't want, which... Actually, I think it's great. We have our air fryer for him, so it's amazing. But my dad didn't really understand the power of Amazon when he first accessed it, that literally anything that he wanted was in grasp with just one click. Now, I want you to imagine having access to this book, the Bible, without any understanding of context or history. You're just reading the words, and you just know that it's the word of God. And so you might read the passage about wives submitting to husbands and all of a sudden you're justified by God in abusing your wife. Or you read the passages about treating your slaves kindly and all of a sudden you justify enslaving another human being. See, what we see is that the Bible in the hands of the individual to read and interpret for themselves was both beautiful and necessary, but it was also dangerous. While it's good and right to read the Bible on our own, we must be careful not to read it in isolation. And this is where reading the Bible in community, connected to other believers, is so important. Now, how many of you know what a Rorschach inkblot test is? You know, you've probably seen it in movies or TV shows, but when you go to a therapist, you're shown a card with an inkblot on it. And you tell the therapist what you see in that inkblot. And the way it works is what you see in that inkblot gives the therapist information about your personality, your emotions, your thought processes. And the inkblots aren't really anything. I mean, they're random, abstract images. But they become what people project from themselves. 
And what I want to suggest is that some people read the Bible as if the passages were Rorschach inkblots. They see what's in their head. They project onto the Bible what they want to see. Some people may see the Jesus inkblot, and they might see a Republican because they're Republican. Some may see in the Jesus inkblot the Constitution because they're particularly patriotic. You know, there are some who are looking at the Bible and justifying holding worship rallies in defiance of the government at this very moment. There are some people who are looking at the Bible and seeing pro-life. Others are looking at the Bible and seeing pro-choice. Reading the Bible as an inkblot ultimately causes us to project onto the Bible our ideas and our ideas. You know, Scott McKnight, who we've been drawing a lot from in this series, author and professor, he always started his, his semester, the first day of his semester, he'd give his students the same test. And what this test did, it asked them to fill out a basic personality questionnaire about the, their view of Jesus. And so after filling out this questionnaire about their view of Jesus, then they would answer the same questions slightly shifted about themselves. And what Scott McKnight found was that everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. And the test results also suggested that even though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case, that we try to make Jesus look more like ourselves. And this is the danger when we read and interpret scripture in isolation. When we go about faith on our own, we end up projecting onto Jesus our own image. Instead of being swept into the Bible's story, Rorschach thinkers sweep the Bible up into their own story. Now, Lisa Harper, she says this, to overcome thin faith, Christians need to study scripture in light of the writer's historic and cultural context, the original meanings of words, and the biblical text in the context of the teachings of church fathers and mothers. It requires serious study and reflection. Thin faith creates its own collection of Instagram memes that serve as life principles. One's personal point of view becomes the highest authority. What's scary is many of us think we're submitting to the authority of Scripture, but we're actually only submitting to our own authority because we're taking this text, we're reading it and interpreting it in isolation, we're projecting our own beliefs, our own thoughts, our own images upon the very Word of God. Now, we have to understand, in the Bible, people didn't have access to the Bible, to the scriptures, the way that we do today. Not only that, most people weren't literate enough to read the Bible on their own anyway. And so we have to remember that throughout the Bible, scripture was most often read in community, which is revolutionary in our day, because most of us, when we think about scripture, we think about you know being in my room, waking up in the morning, and doing my quiet time devotionals, reading it in my own time. But in the context of Bible and history, it was most often read aloud in large groups of people. Moses gathered the people together to read the scriptures together. When the Israelites arrived in the promised land, Joshua gathered the people and read the scripture to them. King Josiah did the same. Many instances in the Old Testament of people gathering around to hear the scriptures read, to talk about it and consult among one another about how to live that out. If we look at Acts 2.42, the early church, Paul writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread 
and to prayer. The author of Acts wrote and, and documented that the early church would gather daily to hear the Bible being read, and then they would engage the scriptures in community. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. You know, we have to remember Paul's letters weren't these little pamphlets handed out to every believer. They were letters that were read aloud to the church when they gathered together in one place. In other words, there's something about coming together with others around Scripture that's so powerful and necessary for us in our lives of faith. Hearing the Word together, reading the Word together, interpreting the Word together, and engaging the Word together. Scripture was meant to be read and enjoyed and unpacked in community. Now, today, I want to suggest that there are two ways that God is calling us, the modern-day believer, to read Scripture in community. The first is within the greater body of Christ, and the second is within the local body of Christ. And so this is where we're going today. Y'all with me still? Cool. And so reading Scripture in the greater body, I think in our westernized individualistic culture, we live in a bubble where faith is just this personal me and God thing. Just the two of us, like just just me and Jesus. I don't need anyone else. It's just me and him on the road together alone. I don't need anyone else to tell me what to do. It's just me and God. Or maybe at most we're aware of our local community and we know community groups are good. We know this and that. But I think we often forget that we're connected to a greater body of Christ, which includes every believer alive today, as well as every believer that's come before us. And I believe that God calls us to read the Bible with the greater body of Christ. And one way that we do that is by reading the Bible with Christ tradition. In other words, keeping in mind all those who have read, interpreted, and lived out the Bible throughout history before us. Now, I think in our day, tradition gets a bad rap. You know, when we think of tradition, we think of outdated, irrelevant faith. When we think of church history, we seem to recall all the ways the church has missed its mark and hurt others and oppressed others. But make no mistake, so much of what you believe about God, about faith, about religion today has been shaped by church history. And I think it seems too often in our day and age that everybody reads the Bible for themselves and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. While everyone should read the Bible on their own, not everyone should interpret the Bible on their own because there is such a thing as bad interpretation. And that can have damaging effects on our lives and on the lives of those around us. And so we look to tradition and history. Now, I can't swim. That's right. I'm a 33-year-old grown man that cannot swim. And so one thing that I was never able to enjoy in my childhood or in my adult life are water slides. But I always thought water slides look so fun. And as as an Enneagram type 7, I feel like I want to try it one day. But the thing about water slide is this. Everything about a trip down that slide into the pool is determined by the slide itself. Without the slide, you wouldn't make it to the pool. You'd drop to the ground. You'd end up somewhere else. But here's the thing. If the slide doesn't have sides high enough, 
we would fly off at every bend. Can you imagine if the slide was very thin, not high walls, and you're coming around a bend at full speed, just fly straight off. And so when we look at reading scripture and approaching scripture like a water slide, reading the Bible with wise mentors throughout history, all those who have come before us, is like sliding down a water slide and not flying off. Imagine that the gospel is a slide and the Bible is one side of that wall, but the other side of that wall is our teachers and our great tradition throughout history. Now water running down is the Holy Spirit and the pool at the bottom is our world in our day and age. If we knock down the walls of the slide, we would injure ourselves. If we say, screw history and tradition and what others have concluded about the Bible, I have the Holy Spirit, I can read and interpret and apply this on my own, we end up flying off the slide and we could end up becoming Rorschach readers, projecting ourselves into Scripture. But there's something wise and safe about reading the Bible in light of all that's been revealed before us. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's exhorting the church to remember everything they've learned, that they are not learning the scripture in isolation in their own interpretation, but from all those teachers who have come before, they're drawing from their wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Now, in the early fourth century, there was a controversy in the church surrounding the personhood of God. I think for many of us, we understand the concept of the Trinity of God, that Father, Son, Spirit are three in one. But at the time, there were a sect of believers known as Arians who asserted that Jesus the Son didn't always exist. So he didn't exist in the beginning of time with Spirit and with the Father, but he was created by God the Father. And so Jesus was no longer divine like the Father was, he was a creation just like everything else. And so the Council of Nicaea was formed to address this controversy. And from that council, the church wrestled and they grappled with this and they came to the conclusion which they wrote into something called the Nicene Creed, which determined that our doctrine about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit are three in one, would be church theology. And so most of you don't know this, but the pillars of your theology and faith come from this one moment and this one creed. Some of you might know the Nicene Creed. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us because I think it's so powerful for us to know. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us, men of, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come 
come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, some of you may have recited this growing up, or maybe the Apostles' Creed. But these creeds point to the non-negotiables of our faith. They point us to what God has led the church to see as its most important doctrines throughout history. And so while reading the Bible in light of history and tradition is so important, here's the thing we have to be careful of. There's a big difference between reading the Bible through tradition and reading the Bible with tradition. Now, so reading the Bible through tradition leads to traditionalism, which is this inflexible, don't ask questions, do it the way it's always been done approach toward the Bible. And this is what often ends up happening. If we were to break this down into steps, we read the Bible, we confront an issue and make a decision about it, according to the Bible. We fossilize that decision, and it becomes a tradition. Now we're bound to that tradition, and we're bound to read the Bible through that tradition. And those who question our tradition are suspect, or at worst, kicked out of the church. Does that sound familiar? I think many of us have all had experiences like that. We can all think of that church that is unwilling to change with the times. You know, churches that will only sing hymns. Churches where women must still wear head coverings. And, you know, I believe that sometimes theology is shaped by time. Think about how much has changed in the church in the past few decades. I mean, it was only a few decades ago where the big raging debate in the church was if drums should be allowed in worship. I mean, can you imagine our Kevins wouldn't exist, our Justins wouldn't exist had it not been the church grappling with tradition instead of just looking through tradition. And even it hasn't been too long since the church was literally segregated where black people could only worship with other black people and white people with other white people. You know, sometimes as a pastor and as a believer, I often wonder what side of history I'll be on. You know, I I always daydream. I wonder if I traveled 50, 100 years into the future, if I'll be proud of the way I lived out my faith or ashamed. You know, honestly, I think most of us want, would want to believe that we would have been on that march in that fight against injustice with Martin Luther King Jr. But the reality is that most of us probably wouldn't have been there. And I think we have a responsibility to engage tradition and theology in our day and age. And so while we aren't called to read the Bible through tradition and to fossilize tradition, we are called to read the Bible with tradition. In other words, we go back to the Bible with our eyes on the great tradition so that we can move forward through the church and speak God's word in our days, in our ways. We need to go back without getting stuck, and we need to move forward without fossilizing our ideas. 
And so when I read the Bible, I keep my eye on the Nicene Creed, about, on the non-negotiables that our church fought to establish, not because it's infallible, but because it's the deposit of the church's wise and faithful interpretation of what the Bible says about God. And in more simpler terms, all spirit with no great tradition creates chaos. On the other hand, all great tradition with no spirit creates traditionalism. And so walking that balance beam is what life in the spirit today is all about. We have to be careful not to turn particular moments into monuments or we'll be wondering where God has gone. And so we see that the biblical authors and the early church didn't fossilize traditions. They went back to the Bible so they could come forward into the present. They read the Bible with tradition. Um, a few examples, just so you know I'm not making this up. Acts 11. Okay, Peter has this undeniable vision from God and determines that Gentiles, or in other words, non-Jewish people, who were previously considered unclean, could now be welcomed into the faith. The tradition was that only Jews could be saved. But the greater body gathered together under Peter's vision and determined that all were welcome because they didn't read scripture through tradition. They read it with tradition. If we look to Acts 15, the Jewish tradition was that you must be circumcised into the faith. And can you imagine in our day and age, like maybe you didn't get circumcised as a baby and you accept Jesus Christ. And what would be normal in Jewish tradition is you got to get circumcised, even in old age. And so that was the Jewish tradition. But Paul and Barnabas challenged that tradition and said that circumcision was a representation of the circumcision of sin from our hearts. And so now that Jesus has come and he's done that, circumcision was no longer a requirement to be part of the faith. And so the greater body gathered together and they determined that circumcision was not necessary to be a follower of the way. Some of you should be shouting hallelujah right now. Why? Because the early church didn't read through tradition. They read with tradition. And so reading the Bible with tradition gives us guidance, but it also gives us freedom to re-express the tradition. And I believe that right now we are re-expressing the tradition, re-expressing what church is, what worship sounds like, what role women play, who should have a seat at the table. I mean, I might have shared this before, but I love and I hate Christian bookstores. You know, they're, they're kind of a dying breed now. And part of me is grieving, but part of me is also kind of happy. I love it and I hate it. And I love it because there's a wealth of knowledge there. You could find information or knowledge about anything. But the reason why I hate it is because when I see who's writing these books and which books are being featured, I don't see many people that look like me. And it's no secret that mainstream Christianity has a majority white male influence. And I believe one of the things that God is re-expressing in our day is who is allowed a seat at the table. I believe that God is raising up people of color to be prophetic voices, to write books, to write songs, to contribute to theology. I believe in our day and age, God is raising up women to write books, to write songs, to contribute to theology, to have mainstream appeal the same way that others have in the past. I mean, can you think of one mainstream worship song that was written by someone Asian? 
It's not because Asians aren't writing songs. It's because it hasn't been accepted into the mainstream yet. Can you think of any pastor or leader with worldwide influence that's Asian? You know, recently, we, Krista and I found ourselves in a Zoom group chat with Eugene Cho and Matt Chandler. And some of you might know who Eugene Cho is, but if you were to list, and they even brought this up in the chat, like how many prominent Asian voices in the church can you think of? And most people maybe thought of Francis Chan, Eugene Cho, could only think of a few. There's a problem with that. And I believe in our day and age, God is re-expressing faith so that more voices are brought to the table. So we are called to carry God's timeless and historic message in a timely and cultured way for our day. I want to just conclude this section with just one more illustration. When I went to seminary, um, I went to a pretty conservative seminary, a pretty conservative school where they still believe that women do not have a place of leadership in the church. And so women are not allowed to preach or to teach to men. They can lead Sunday school and teach to children, but they cannot teach, preach, or lead men or hold positions of leadership in the church. And so I would be in these classes, and I would be so frustrated because I would see so many sisters to my left and my right, and I'd ask them, like, oh, why are you in seminary? Like, what's your hope? What's your aspiration? They say, I just want to be a good pastor's wife. Or I just want to be a counselor. And there's nothing wrong with being a counselor or a therapist or, you know, marriage and family therapist. But, but I wonder how many of them denied their actual calling to be pastors or teachers or preachers because the church was seeing through tradition and not with tradition. I think traditionally women were not allowed to preach or teach men or hold positions of leadership in the church. And most of it is derived from a few passages in the New Testament. If we look at 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35, Paul writes, As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Wow. Or maybe 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, she must be silent. And so imagine that you're reading through tradition. You read this, and you conclude that women have to be silent in church. They can't lead men. They can't hold positions of authority. They can't preach, no matter how gifted or insightful they are. And traditionalists would read these passages through tradition instead of with tradition. And the latter, reading with tradition, challenges the tradition while the former does not. And so reading with the tradition, we see that Paul was writing to a specific people in a specific context. You know, I think most of us forget that most of the books in the New Testament were letters that Paul was writing to specific churches. In other words, he wasn't writing with the weight of this is going to be Holy Scripture one day. One day believers at 99 in a city called San Francisco are going to be reading from this text and learning how to live. I don't think he was reading with the, the, he wasn't writing with that in mind. He was writing to specific churches in specific cities, in specific contexts in a specific time. And reading with the tradition, we see that at the time, 
If you look at the context, Roman culture was influencing women in the church to do a number of things, some of which are dressed immodestly, and they were dressing immodestly even by today's standard, right? And constantly interrupting church gatherings by speaking up. And because women in general were less educated than men at the time, by no fault of their own, most of them were not proficient in understanding or interpreting the Bible. And so they would speak up in these gatherings and distract others from hearing the word when they were ill-equipped to teach or interpret the Bible. And so Paul was addressing this very specific problem in a very specific context in a very specific time. And reading through tradition, we would conclude that women should never preach or lead in the church. But reading with tradition, we actually see that Paul empowered women to teach and lead. In Galatians 3.28, he writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you look at the New Testament, Priscilla, she was a teacher and a co-laborer with Paul that wasn't just preaching or teaching to women or children, but teaching all of the disciples. Phoebe was a deacon and a minister of the gospel, which which is a huge deal. And most of you have probably never heard of Junia. Do you know who Junia is? And it's because in many translations of the Bible, her name was changed to a male name, Junius, because women weren't supposed to be apostles. But Junia was an apostle described as being outstanding among the apostles by Paul's very own words, or in other words, an apostle above other apostles. Isn't it sad that most of us don't know who Junia is from the New Testament, but Paul calls her the apostle above other apostles. How powerful is that? And we would have missed that if we read the New Testament reading through tradition instead of with tradition. Not to mention all the women who led in the Old Testament, Miriam, who was a prophet and spiritual leader alongside Moses, Deborah, who was a prophet and national leader over Israel, Huldah, who's known as a prophet above the prophets during King Josiah's time. Reading through tradition, we would deny countless women their destiny and their calling, but reading with tradition, we're able to enjoy the leadership, teaching, and contribution of women in the church. Listen, I would not be the pastor that I am today were it not for women. Most of my mentors throughout my faith journey have been women, a majority. And how sad and tragic would it have been if we would have denied these women their destiny and their calling because we read the Bible through tradition instead of with tradition. All that to say, we must consider tradition while reading the Bible. And I would challenge all of you to study more about what you believe, why you believe it, and where that belief came from. This is us interacting with tradition, not reading the Bible in our own isolated, uh, alone state, but connecting with the greater body of Christ. But we have to be careful not to read through tradition, but with tradition. Cool. Y'all got that? All right, last point. So we have to read scripture with the larger body, the greater body of Christ. But we're also called to read scripture with the local body. Now, I want to encourage you to engage the scriptures with your local community. Whether it looks like doing many Bible studies together, 
or texting each other Bible verses you've been meditating on and how it's moving you. You know, I love that Jay, Jasmine keeps telling us Jay has like a million different threads open with different friends, different friend groups where he just texts his favorite Bible verse from the day and how God's speaking to him. And he's engaging with the local body. And Jasmine was saying she's in every one of these threads. So she gets it multiple times. And I love that, that Jay is sharing his experience with scripture with the local body, whether it's asking questions about scripture or theology with your leaders or pastors or mentors, don't engage the Bible alone. And this is our challenge to you this week. Find some way to engage the Bible with one person from 99 in any way, whether it's, you know, doing what Jay did and sharing a Bible verse, or whether it's talking through a particular passage, doing a Bible study together or a study together, whether it's going to your pastors or your leaders, asking theological questions that you've always had questions about. I want us to engage as a local community in reading and interacting with scripture. Awesome. Cool. And so we see the power of reading scripture in community with the greater body of Christ and with the local body of Christ. I want to end today's message and our collection with this really cool story. There was a French philosopher in the 1800s. His name was Voltaire. And he was a fierce opposer of Christianity and specifically the Bible. And he was quoted as one saying, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be nothing more than a museum piece. In other words, a hundred years from now, the Bible is going to be completely irrelevant. Check this out. A hundred years after his death, his house became one of the largest Bible distribution centers in all of France. I tell you this because this book, this ancient library that has stood the test of time, will continue to endure. First Peter says that the word of the Lord will endure forever. And so let's continue to lean into the mystery of scripture. Let's continue to engage with the text, whether we're wrestling or submitting to its authority or meditating upon it or memorizing it or approaching it as a story or studying it. Let's continue to lean in and engage with the holy scriptures, but let's not do it alone. Let's consider all those who have read it before us. Let's consider all those who read it alongside us today. And let's continue to treasure the word of God as a people of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for giving us this ancient text, this beautiful, mysterious, complicated story that's oftentimes hard to understand. But we thank you in it is life, in it is treasure, in it is you. And so God, as we end our collection, would you continue to guide us and lead us as a community, as a church, as a people of God in our day and age to engage with the Bible, to treasure your scripture, to love it, and to live it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.